It is football season. And one of the things that make it interesting is when a certain series of plays was determined, and then on the field, the quarterback calls an audible. He senses an opportunity or he senses a difficulty. He senses something that has moved and changed, and it might be better to do this rather than the other. I need to call an audible today. We are working through Hebrews chapter 11, the, the great chapter on faith. And we've come to chap, verse 13, which I think is marvelous. And it kept on nagging at me that next week, when we have child dedications and baptisms, and by the way, we're going to do it over two weeks because we have so many children, Hebrews eleven twenty three would be the perfect verse to deal with at that time. And so pretty much last minute, I've decided to speak on something else this morning, to speak on something I've already spoken about in order to be able to do that next week. Now, to explain, what I'd like to speak about today is not from a single passage of Scripture, and almost always we love to preach from a single passage of Scripture because we don't want to give a lecture, we want to give a sermon. And yet, what we'd like to cover today has to do with the way the Bible fits together. That may sound interesting to some of you, and to others of you, you may think, oh my goodness, why did I not bring a comic book to church today? But the idea is, I think it would be helpful if we persevere in that. For one, many of you have started attending our church before we covered this subject any number of years ago. And secondly, many of you were children and too young to understand, and I believe you would understand now. But thirdly, even though this idea is a little more theological than some of our sermons, the practical value of it is enormous if you get to thinking about how to apply. So I'll try to apply it in one way at the end, and you can extrapolate to other ways from that. So, here we go. How does the Bible fit together? In the Garden of Eden, there was no suffering. Even today, you see travel brochures for beaches that say, Beaches like Eden. I mean, if you were to summarize what Eden was like, you might say, if you were being light about it, whenever the toast fell, it would always fall jelly side up on the rug. Things just went rightly. It was good. Adam and Eve felt good. They looked good. They were brilliant. You never got into church where a conference speaker droned on and on. You could not imagine having a longing unfulfilled. It was that good. And there was only one law that was possible to break. God said, on the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Eat, they did. I don't know if it was an apple or not, but that's what tradition has it. So suppose it was. Adam takes a bite of that apple. Looks around. Nobody's dead yet. He did not realize the awful way in which death would come. Death would come largely the way evening comes. The shadows start, and then they lengthen. And eventually, the darkness envelops all. That's exactly what happens there. And so sin ruined everything. You know, it ruined the earth. You didn't have plants just growing so naturally. You were on your knees, scraping and clawing to get the ground to grow. You had tornadoes and storms and all kinds of bad weather, everything imaginable. And the longer we live, the more we see on earth how it declined over the centuries. And then not just the earth, but physically. Adam and Eve were beautiful, and they just did not know pain. Now Eve had her first child, and she knew something about pain. And Adam knew what it was like to get up and go to work when he did not feel like it. And spiritually, 
oh, they were not close to God anymore. And they had that same sick feeling that you and I know all so well on those days or weeks where we feel like God is remote and cannot hear a thing. Emotionally, people started getting depressed. They had mood swings. All this is from sin. But God told them, this is not going to last forever. In the hearing of Adam and Eve, God told the devil, the serpent, this woman is going to have a descendant who will crush your head. And so they held on to hope. Many, many years later, God started sending prophets to his people, the Israelites, saying, God is going to do this. The day is coming. He's going to send us anointed king. He's going to make everything right side up again. All the harm that Satan has done, he's going to undo. He's going to reverse the curse. The earth is not going to be hostile anymore. Instead, we read in the prophets verses like this from Isaiah 4. God will make a canopy. It will be a shade from the heat of the day and a hiding place from the storm and rain. Oh, that sounds pretty good. The days are coming when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. God promised in the prophets that people would be spiritually healthy again. Jeremiah 31. They will all know me from the least of them who walked out the door and they were in the nursery to the oldest of them. Some of you were here in this room. This is my covenant with them, God said. On that day, I will actually stick my law in their minds. Oh my goodness, I'll be changed from the inside out, not just an external law that I'll have to be a hoop that I can't jump through. And God promised that people would be physically healthy again. He first couched it in terms that were understandable back then, Isaiah 65. Never again will there be an infant who lives only a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. But a man who dies at 100 will be thought to be a mere youth. He's setting us up for the doctrine of immortality that's coming in heaven. And he says in Zechariah 9, how attractive they will be. They will sparkle like jewels in a crown. How beautiful they would be. Grain will make the young men thrive. And, make the, and new wine will make the young women thrive. No more disease, no more death, all that business. Now, the Bible has terms for these two periods. I'm reading from page 7 here. The first is loss, um, the time of loss and hardship and sin and sadness. The second term is for the, the time when everything's made new and there's joy and overflowing, unending celebration. That first time that he's talking about where the earth is still under the curse is called in the Bible the present age. The second time in the Bible, this is the phrase the Bible uses any number of times, is called the age to come. First age is tough. Age to come is great. We'll represent it now in a timeline so that we see that it's as time progresses that this happens. And let's put the age to come at a little higher plane than the present age because it's a much better existence. By the way, this, this little diagram is not... Um, unique to me. Uh, George Ellen Ladd was uh, highly instrumental in it, and Herman Ritterboss, if those names mean anything to you. Now, the Bible elaborates what these two ages will be like and says that they're real. Jesus was one time talking about blasphemy. He said, you can say anything against me and it will be forgiven you, but, Matthew twelve thirty two, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That is, in this life, 
God will make it hard for you. And in the age to come, there'll be an eternity of punishment to deal with. Or, or Jesus said in Luke 18, no one who has left family for the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times more in this age and in the age to come. In the age to come, as we learn later, it's heaven. You get everything. But even in this age, those of you, for instance, without family, but who are in this room, if you have messed yourself with the people of this church, if you have come to prayer meetings and have gotten in a small group and stay after the service rather than just leave right away, you know something about what it's like to have family in this age, even if you have no family of your own. So uh, the Bible talks about these two age. The Bible describes the present age in this way. It says in Galatians 1.4 that Jesus rescued us from, quote, this present evil age. Oh, yeah, we get that. We can relate to that. No problem understanding that. How does the Bible describe the age to come? Ah, 1 Timothy 6.19. God told Timothy through Paul to lay up treasures in heaven by how you live now. Lay up treasures for yourselves for the coming age so that you may take hold of life that is truly life. In other words, the coming age is where everything that we imagine life to be or wish it would be really just bursts open and comes to pass. It's glorious. When is this age to come coming? Well, it's very clear. Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 34, the people of this age... They marry each other, and they give their children in marriage. But those who are worthy of taking part of that age in the resurrection from the dead will not marry or give their children in marriage. In other words, the age to come starts at the resurrection, at the end of time, at the second coming. And so uh, in this diagram of PowerPoint 6, the, the arrows stand for our being resurrected up into the clouds of heaven. That's the idea behind the picture. Now, I just want to say before we go on that uh, I had very godly parents, and my dad knew the Bible very well. He got up in the morning every day very early and, and read it through, um, even though uh, he wasn't an educated man. But I never heard these terms and the significance of them emphasized when I was growing up, having family devotions, or even in Bible college, but it permeates the Bible, and particularly the Gospels and the Epistles. It's how the Bible structures history from the creation to eternity future. Now, this language of the age to come is common in the Bible, but in the New Testament, there's another phrase that it uses that's even more common. The New Testament calls the age to come, quote, the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of the Father. All those terms are used, and they're used interchangeably. If you doubt that, see me afterwards. I'll, I'll show you how they parallel. They're used interchangeably. The age to come is used in the New Testament, but it's only used three times. But the idea of the kingdom of God or of the Father or of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, is used 138 times in the New Testament. So let's add to the diagram the words the age to come under the idea of um, I'm sorry, let's add the kingdom of God under the idea of the age to come. And so the age to come is clearly future. The kingdom of God is future. The kingdom of heaven is future and so forth. <clears throat> and so at the Last Supper, Jesus, when he became sober, knowing what was about to happen, he was sad and he took wine. He says, I am not going to drink this wine again. This is Matthew 26, 
29. He said, I am not going to drink this wine again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. You know what that means. When we all have the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of time. <clears throat> and he says that when I, when I drink wine again at the end of time, others are going to join me. Matthew eight eleven. Many are going to come from east and west, and they're going to take their places with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they're going to eat and drink in the kingdom of heaven. It's in the future. Meanwhile, during this present age, we were reminded in the New Testament that it's not an easy time. Acts 14, 22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, that's all right. All's well that ends well. Paul says, I'm looking forward to that. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And when we arrive... Peter says it'll be like this, 2 Peter 1.11. If you live in a way that is faithful to Christ, you will receive a rich welcome into that eternal kingdom of our Lord. And we read again, this comes at the end of time. Matthew 13.42. Angels at the end will throw unbelievers, Jesus says, into a fiery furnace, and then the righteous will shine like sun in the kingdom of their father. And there are many more verses we could have quoted. So let's change the chart again, where we have the age to come, and we're going to call it the kingdom of God from now on, as the New Testament tends to do. But then the Bible throws a curveball. John the Baptist, we read, preaches in Matthew 3, on the eve of Jesus' coming. And we read in Matthew 3, 1, in those days... John came preaching in the desert saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Hmm. We read that he says in that same passage that the Messiah is going to gather his wheat into the barn, but he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's clearly talking about believers and unbelievers, sheep and goats, those on his right, those on his left, some into heaven and some into eternal punishment. John is in prison eventually, but that's okay. He knows the kingdom is just around the corner. Jesus is going to set up this messianic kingdom, and I am out of here. So Jesus starts preaching once John is in prison. He uses the same language. It was a little surprising. Matthew four seventeen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. The kingdom of God is near. Really? Here's how he demonstrated it. Matthew four twenty three. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease among the people. Well, he says the good news is that the kingdom is right at the doorstep, right here. Look, look at all these people that are being healed. Can't you tell that's what's happening? And so Jesus began talking about the kingdom of God surprisingly as something that was present in his lifetime. Matthew 12, 28. As he heals the demonized man, he says to those around him, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Really? He says in Luke 17, 20. Once, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, 
the kingdom of God is among you. King James translates it within you. It's here right now. And the proof is that I'm here and I'm the king. And so to prove that it's here, he performs his miracles. And the apostles spoke in the same way of the kingdom of God is already here. Colossians 1.13. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the son whom he loves. Remember, Jesus had spoken of the kingdom as future when he will drink wine in the kingdom of heaven. So which is it? Is the kingdom of God in the future in heaven? Or did the kingdom of God start when Jesus was here on earth? And in case you're scratching your head about it, I hope you take comfort at the fact that even John the Baptist was confused. Jesus had called him the greatest man who had ever lived. And yet, John the Baptist sent a message from prison. Matthew 11, verse 2. He sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who's going to come, or are we supposed to look for another one? Think about that. From the words of John the Baptist who announced him. He's saying, in essence, You seem like the Messiah bringing the kingdom. I mean, you're healing these people. You're casting out demons. You calm a storm. You raise the dead. But where is the end of the world? I don't see the wheat wheat being gathered into heavenly barns. I don't see the wicked being burned into fire. My goodness, the wicked are everywhere, and they throw me in prison. There's no judgment day. Sinners aren't being called to account. And, And Jesus, God's people are still suffering. If you could see me in this dungeon, you would know. And it's possible I'll be killed soon. Are you the one? Have you really brought the kingdom? What's up? Jesus' answer in John eleven four. Go back, Jesus said to John's messengers, and report what you hear and see. Quote, the blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those of leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is preached to the poor. In other words, he's saying the kingdom has come. But then he adds this intriguing little phrase. He says, and blessed is the one who does not fall away because of me. Why does Jesus add a little phrase, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away because of me? Well, among many reasons, it's because John, soon after that, was murdered by Herod. Yes, the kingdom has come. Look at all the good. Oh, John is murdered. How do people put that together? Because although Jesus would heal some people, many people in that day were never healed, and some people were made worse. Although he raised the dead, there would be some people who would be martyred in his name. Although he would hush the storms on Lake Galilee, his apostle Paul would be shipwrecked and float in the sea three times. Christ will relieve people of their suffering, but Christ from heaven is going to say of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. It's as if Jesus is saying, John, the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in the way you think. It has begun, but it has not been consummated. I'm giving you a taste of what the kingdom is like, but the full meal was not going to come until much later. My miracles show what the kingdom is like. But then I'm going to suffer and die on a cross because a grain, a seed must die if it's to bring life. 
And then my followers are going to take up their cross and they're going to need to suffer and die in order to bring life to others. And because of this paradox, Jesus told his parables of the kingdom, most famously in Matthew 13, but other gospels treat it as well. He said in Matthew 13, 11, the secrets, and he had a good reason for using that word, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, my disciples, but the others won't understand. What are these parables and what are these secrets? Well, he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Eventually, it's going to yield this enormous tree. But when it starts, it's going to start so small, you almost can't see it compared to the other seeds. And he says, oh, the kingdom of God is like, this is from Luke nineteen eleven. It says, there was a time when people came and asked him, because they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And so his answer was this parable, Luke 19. A nobleman went away to be appointed king. He left some money with his servants to use it wisely. Later he returned as king and he required his servants to give an accounting how they spent the money. And he says the kingdom will not come at once in essence. It is a kingdom because I'm here. But I'm going away to receive a kingdom and coming back. He's playing with their minds, not in an irresponsible way, but to get them to think. In other words, Christ taught that there is a great tension between the good that has already come because he began the kingdom and the good that is not yet here because he won't consummate the kingdom until the end of the world. The kingdom has arrived, but not totally. It's come partially, but not fully. It's present in one sense. It's not present in the other sense. You may have heard the expression that speakers frequently use. It is already. It is not yet. That is the same idea. Now, we're going to put some lines here, and they're dotted lines, because we're saying that the kingdom of God has provisionally come earlier than the second coming. And it began with Jesus. So we'll put Jesus on the diagram. And then, because you and I, Christians, live in this fallen world where the full kingdom hasn't yet come, but the kingdom of God has begun and it has invaded this present age, we'll put ourselves in the middle there so that we live in the middle of two worlds. We live simultaneously in this present age of suffering, and we also live provisionally with a foretaste of the age to come. The age to come, we can experience it today to some extent, but not totally. And so Hebrews 6 verse 5 talks about people who have, quote, tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, there are many ways we could apply this, but let me just take one that, again, we covered years ago. But I, I would love to say it again because it might put some reality to this theory. Why is it that some people pray to God to be healed, and they are? And others pray and pray. They get elders to pray for them. They're on their knees. They fast, and it never comes. Why is that? Why does it happen in some cases, not others? Well, of course, partly the answer to that is we know from 1 Corinthians that if a person is living a miserably sinful life, God, uh, Paul says that the reason some of you are sick in Corinth is because you're acting in a terribly sinful way. That's possible, but that's not the general rule of thumb. We're talking about serious Christians praying for healing. Some get it and some don't. Why not? 
the, the standard answer in some denominations is, well, if you don't get healed, you don't have enough faith. But I think the answer is much deeper than that. And it has to do with what we've been discussing today. Think about it. The prophets say in the Old Testament, the day is coming when the wolf will lie down with the lamb or the, 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 the bear will play and the, the child will play at the, the hole of the cobra and so forth. The Old Testament says that the Messiah will, quote, carry our diseases, Isaiah 53. The Old Testament hints that death is going to be abolished. The Old Testament says all this is going to happen in the age to come. Now, as we say, though, Jesus began that age, but because he didn't consummate it, we can expect that in some ways he would deal with disease, but in other ways he wouldn't until he comes back finally a second time. Just in the same way as he dealt with death in some ways, but not finally. Think about that. Jesus healed in order to show us what the coming kingdom is like. These were meant to be snapshots, previews. They were meant to be, as it were, mom taking the soup on the kitchen for supper, giving you a spoonful, taste this. Doesn't that taste good? Come back in two hours for dinner. That's what he's saying. That's what he's doing. He never intended to heal the disease of every single believer. Just like Jesus raised people from the dead. How many did he raise in his lifetime? Very, very few. And the people he did raise died again. He's giving a taste of what's coming at the end of time with the kingdom of God. So, for instance, there are many passages that talk about this. Jesus sent his disciples out in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons, and so forth. And so the apostles did many miracles. They did many of these things. But in their lifetimes, the very apostles knew what it was like to be sick. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Paul writes in his letter, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Here's the traveling apostle Paul. He gets to the town of Miletus. He's accompanied by several people who are helping him. Miletus gets sick, so sick he can't keep traveling. But Paul needs to go on. So he leaves. Time out. Wasn't Paul the guy who would heal people? Wasn't he the guy who, who put his hands on Eutychus and raised him from the dead? And yet, he leaves Trophimus sick. I mean, he leaves Miletus. He leaves Trophimus sick. Why did they name people that way anyway? Anyway, he left him sick in Miletus. You get the idea. Why? Because God doesn't always do that. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Godly young man, 1 Timothy 5, 23. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Why didn't Paul just wave his hand and say, be healed? It's because God's not doing that all the time. In fact, Paul himself became sick. A good percentage of scholars think that's what he meant in Galatians chapter 4.13 when he says to the Galatians, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Many think that he had to detour and go up into Galatia, where that letter went, to a different climate because it was helpful for his illness. And finally, we know that even the apostles and the greatest Christians of the world get terribly sick. I mean, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, my goodness, if you read their biographies, it almost makes you sick, although they had to endure physically. Here's what Paul said about that, Romans 8.23. 
We who have the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies, meaning that our bodies have not been fully changed yet. So in summary, the apostles, like Jesus, showed what the future coming kingdom would be like when they did their healings and so forth. But even their lifetimes, their miracles gave way to suffering. They were told they must suffer. And this suffering was integral to their spread of the gospel. As Paul writes in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice, he says, in what I suffered for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Does he mean that the death of Jesus was not enough, was not sufficient for an atonement for everybody in the world for whom Christ died? No, no, no. One drop of the blood of Jesus could have saved the entire world. What he means is this. Christ suffered to buy our redemption. But we suffer to spread the news of that redemption. Thus, the full program of redemption is not complete until Jesus has paid for it by his sufferings. We spread it by our sufferings, and then God gathers all his children home at the end of time. God gives his good gifts of healing in order to show what the future kingdom is like. But at the same time, we follow Jesus, who was the man of suffering and acquainted with grief. So to conclude, the question then comes, did Jesus die to give the good life to those with faith. And here, please know, I I speak compassionately in these closing minutes. It is possible some of you are are visiting. It's possible some of you have been from churches that teach if you have enough faith, you can claim this, that, and the other good thing in this life, and it will come. My goal here is to argue from the Bible, just taking a tiny slice of what the Bible says about it, that it's not so. Instead, did Jesus die to give us the good life? Well, Jesus was poor. The early Christians were poor. Not many of you, Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth, were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He said that the Macedonian Christians were extremely poor. The apostle James had his head cut off. His brother John died in exile on a barren island. Peter was in prison. Stephen the deacon was stoned. The Jerusalem Christians were hounded from their city. Aquila and Priscilla, that godly couple, were expelled from the city of Rome. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, quit halfway through a missionary journey because the rigors were simply too hard for him. The Christians of Asia Minor, Paul wrote, Peter wrote, suffered grief in all kinds of trials. Many of the Christians of the first century were slaves. Many of them, we can tell from the epistles, were Believing women with unbelieving husbands who did not understand them. Many were singles who wanted to marry a certain person but were afraid to marry because of the persecution of the times. The book of Hebrews says that the Christians he was writing to were publicly insulted and exposed to persecution. The early Christians fell sick. Their property was confiscated. They felt the pull of temptation They knew what it was like to have their conscience bruised because they fell into sin at times. They all belonged to churches with real problems. They all needed constant encouragement to keep going. A page from Paul says it best. 
He says, I've been exposed to death again and again. I've been beaten by the Jews, beaten by the Gentiles. I've been shipwrecked. I've been a night and the day in the open sea. I've been in danger from this person and that person. I've labored and toiled and gone without sleep. I've been hungry and thirsty and without food. I've been cold. I've been without enough clothes. Having what they didn't want. And wanting what they didn't have. That was the experience of these godly Christians. And in doing so, in living like this, though, they were merely following their Savior who said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. And yet, because the age to come has slipped back into this age through the coming of Jesus, and we have his Spirit in us, and we live not just in this present age, but we live in the age to come, Therefore, we, brothers and sisters, have tasted the powers of the age to come, have you not? The Father has set his love on us. Jesus has prepared a place for us. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And in prayer, he intercedes for us with groans that words can't even express. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and have placed us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. We are called children of God. Beloved children. Sons and daughters. His people. His body. His bride. We are saints of the Most High God. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can now, as Paul says, rejoice in our sufferings. In the middle of our worst trials, we can know the power of his resurrection. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And although we are always being given over to death, it is only, as Paul says, for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed through our mortal bodies. His strength is made perfect in our weakness when I am weak, then I am strong. And through him, we can lead many others to righteousness. And as Daniel said, we will shine like stars forever and ever. And we will be like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And that's why Paul can say to Christians who live in both ages at once, through him, we are more and conquerors through him who loved us. Pretty good, huh? Think about that for a moment and we'll close in prayer. Father, you have promised in your word. Delight yourself in the Lord. 
and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know the desires that you have already met in the people in this room that have given us that wonderful taste of things to come. And you know the unmet desires of every person here. Father, may we cling to the one and have faith to endure through the other. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the beginner and finisher of our faith. May we run with patience the race that is set before us. May you give grace to the weakest and tirest in this room. And may you give joy to the most downtrodden. Now may the sweet grace of our Lord Jesus, may the love that flows from the throne of God the Father, and may the power to live faithfully that comes from the Holy Spirit be with every true believer in this room. Amen.